go somewhere? Oh, well. And really enjoyed seeing Simon tonight, too. He, yes, he heard I was teaching, so he came all the way from China. Um, now, he um, actually, I know, I know Simon and Shirley both um, from Faulkner University. We all went there together uh, back 16, 17-something years ago. And uh, he and his wife, Shirley, were always just the sweetest people and uh, really have always had a heart to, to serve God and to take the gospel to other people. So it was really great to see Simon tonight. And there he is. Hey, Simon. I was just bragging on you. Um, this, this quarter, uh, I was asked to uh, teach a class. Actually, Terry had been after me for uh, a few, well, about a year. <laughs> He'd asked me about a year ago if I would teach a class, one quarter, an adult class. And um, I just, you know, between you know, set, getting ready for VBS in the, in the spring and then doing VBS in the summer, and then uh, I teach sixth grade every, every fall, I said, look, I can only do it in the winter, so I had to wait till basically from last winter to this winter to start this class. And when he asked me for a topic, I, I already had one in mind because I've been thinking about this for a long time. Um, something that's always intrigued me uh, is the soul. The soul of a person. And I guess what really makes me think about that the most is because, you know, I always, ever since I was a very small child, and many of you probably have done this too, you wondered, you know, who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing here? Uh, What motivates me to do the things that I do? What defines me? And I think a lot of the answers to those questions really uh, center around our soul, that very essence of, of who we are. And there are a lot of questions that arise, and really tonight this is just an introduction, but there are a lot of questions that arise when we talk about the soul, when we discuss the soul. Uh, what is it, first of all? Uh, how do you define it? Uh, are the spirit and the soul the same thing? And this is a topic of much debate and much discussion, and I think that there's a lot of scriptural basis on, to answer that. Where does the soul originate? When do we receive it? Will everyone be saved? Will all souls be saved in the end? What happens to the soul after death? Is it annihilated or is it sent for eternal punishment if, if, it has not, uh, if, if we have not obeyed the commands of God? Um, how does sin relate to the soul? Will the soul be punished for sin? How does heaven relate to the soul? The soul and the whole person. Um, you know, we have different parts to us. And how does our soul relate to the different aspects of the human being? Also, what's the difference between a Christian and someone who's a non-Christian as far as the soul is concerned? And trust me, there is a very, very big difference there. And also, uh, some questions that have come to light, especially of late, psychological disorders in the soul. Um, the difference between the mind and the soul, the difference between the brain and the soul. How do those things interact? So these are a lot of questions that I hope that we'll answer this quarter, and I hope that this will be a, an in-depth study. I, I've been working on these lessons for a while and had a great opportunity to do a lot of biblical study on this, so I'm really excited about the, doing this this quarter. Well, first off, 
Our first lesson, which we'll do next Wednesday, is what is the soul? So now I just want to go through and just give you a, a quick introduction to what lessons we'll go over this quarter. So what is it? What is our soul? Um, if I were to ask you, can you touch your soul or can you taste your soul, feel it, you know, can you see it, any of these things, uh, what would you say? No, you can't in any way sense that part of you. Now, you may be able to indirectly sense that part of you by some observation as far as how human beings interact with each other, how we display love, some of these non-corporeal types of things that are not easy to define, but it's not something that you can experiment on scientifically and dig into and you know, cut up and put in a Petri dish and examine under a microscope. That's not what the soul is. A few things we do know about it is that it is created by God. It's something that has been formed by Him. Something that people cannot themselves form. And a lot of people, you know, naturalists in this day and age, you know, who try to explain things like how people have developed morals, how people have come to understand emotions and, and why we care about people and why we love and why we do the things we do, will say, well, that was developed through you know, millions or you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of years by social interactions which led from one thing to another that eventually developed into people saying, well, that was to love someone is the best thing to do to, to further the human race. But when it comes right down to it, those types of naturalistic exp- explanations don't make any sense, don't hold any water. When it comes down to something as magnificent as the soul that God has placed in us. And this makes it difficult to define the soul. It's not one of these things that you can you know, hold up an apple and say, okay, this is an apple. This is easy to define. This is something concrete. This is something that everybody knows what it is and, and it's easy to see what it is. The soul is not like that in any way, shape, or form. It's something that takes a lot of thought and a lot of digging, especially in Scripture, to understand just exactly what it is. The soul, as far as defining it from a language perspective now, there are a couple of different words that are used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word nefesh, which means to breathe, is used. I'm supposed to go forward. There we go. The Hebrew word nefesh, which means to breathe, is used in the Old Testament. And the Greek word suke, which basically means the same thing, is used in the New Testament. And both of these have the idea behind them that it, this is something that is breathed into us, put into us by a creator. Something that animates us and gives us life and makes us who we are. And it separates us from the animals. Um, Something you know, that I think a lot of people, especially people in the secular world, don't understand is that humans and animals are very, very different on a very fundamental level. 
And I'm not speaking from a physical perspective here. I'm speaking from a spiritual perspective. Because animals do have a spirit of life, a breath, so to speak, that has been put inside of them that allows them to be animated and to live and to serve us as however we see fit. Um, and we'll talk more about that as we go through the lessons because there are things in the Bible that do deal with how we relate to members of the animal kingdom and how we care for them and different things like that. I think that someone who's cruel to an animal probably has some issues that they need to deal with. That doesn't mean that we can't eat them. It doesn't mean that we can't uh, use them for for labor. But there is uh, evidence in Scripture that talks about caring for them and and caring for all aspects of God's world and His universe, uh, being good stewards of that. But when it comes right down to it, animals uh, are separated from us by one thing, and that one primary thing is the soul, the eternal everlasting soul. And we'll go into that in more detail as we go through our lessons in this quarter. Also, are the spirit and the soul the same thing? Um, I, in my studies, um, and, I, and I have you know, delved deeply in other people's commentaries and writings about this too, have found that the spirit and the soul are indeed different. They have different aspects, and, and in Scripture there, especially in Second uh, Thessalonians, which we'll look at um, in another lesson, they are spoken of in separate terms and described throughout Scripture in separate ways. And we'll look more specifically at how they're different, perhaps why they're different, and how they interact with us separately and together to make us who we are. Now, uh, again, the words for, uh, for spirit are a bit different, but mean something similar to the words from soul when you look at them in the original language. The Hebrew for spirit in the Old Testament is ruach, and it means wind or immaterial or life. And in the New Testament, <clears throat> the... Uh, the word, the Greek word, is pneuma, which basically means about the same thing. So there are similarities there, but when it comes down to the fundamental meanings of spirit versus soul, they are subtly different and define us in different ways. Uh, basically, the spirit is what gives life or breath to the human, and the soul is what gives identity or self to the human. So there are some fundamental differences there that help us to understand ourselves and the way that we operate in God's world as well. Um, Spirits are also mentioned as uh, angels. God is mentioned as a spirit. Um, And in Scripture it talks about, you know, that God does not die. Angels do not die. Um, Spirits do not die. They go on and on and on and on for eternity. Um, So that speaks... To our spiritual nature, you know, as a soul and a spirit that are two parts of a whole. Now, where does the soul originate? Where does it come from? Um, If we look over in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, and I'm I'm not going to get too much into the scripture tonight because I want to examine it in a lot more detail as we go through the different classes this quarter, but if you look at Genesis 2 and verse 7, 
We read, Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And here we see that God is breathing into man. He is giving man breath. He's giving man life. Um, the Hebrew words used here are nefesh chaya, or soul breathers. It's literally what it means. It means that all this breath that was breathed into us and into the animals as well is what animates us and gives us that life. Also in Genesis 1, 26 through 27... Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, what does it mean to be made? In God's image. I mean, what an amazing thing that God made us like Him in some way. Isn't that the most... I mean, I guess you know, that just kind of blows my mind, really, that I and you, we all here, human beings who inhabit this earth, are made in the image of of God. And we're going to delve into that much more deeply, but I want you to be thinking about that. What makes you and me, all of us, in God's image? What properties do we hold that make us like Him in some way? And sometimes you have to pinch yourself and go, oh, I'm not like Him at all. I'm sinful. I'm, you know, I'm base. Uh, I have immoral tendencies. I'm rebellious. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm this fleshly being who has all these problems, but there are parts of us that are made in His image. Also, the soul is an immortal nature from an eternal and infinite source. And I want you to think about that for a minute. Eternal, infinite source. Immortal nature. The continuation of ourselves into eternity. That's Another one of those mind-blowing things. You, you just can't even conceive of us going on and on and on for eternity in the, in the way that God does. Um, in Luke twenty four thirty nine, it talks a little bit about this. <clears throat> and again, we'll delve more deeply into this as we... I'm going to try to keep up with the time here as much as I can. As we do other lessons... Luke twenty four thirty nine. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. John 4.24 as well. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So there is this immortal nature that comes from that infinite source that we have 
inside of us. Another thing to consider, and I know we've probably heard this many times, is that you are a soul. You're not this. This, this body, this shell is not who you are. It's just a vessel that we inhabit when we're here on this earth. Now, when do we receive the soul? Well, actually, a better way to ask this question, especially based on what we just said, is when does our soul receive a body? Um, We see in James 2.26 that a spirit and a soul must both be present in order for a body to live. In James 2.26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now a lot of times we read this and we use it you know, to talk about, yeah, faith without works is dead. It's a very important point. But there's also another very important point. If your spirit isn't there, you're not alive. You're dead. Your body is dead. Your spirit lives on. But without the spirit in, inside this shell that we call a body, you're dead. That's it. Um, also in Jeremiah 1.5, and I won't go there because I think a lot of us know what it says, but when a person is conceived by the joining of the sperm and the egg in the womb, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. We all know that pretty well, don't we? Uh, It's a very important verse. And also, in that same verse, we see that technically, we exist before our bodies exist. God says to us, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That means before the sperm and the egg were joined in the womb to produce a zygote, you already existed in some, some way. Your soul, your spirit... The essence of who you are already existed. Now, I can't answer the question of how long, if you want to put it in terms of time, that those parts of you existed prior to you being joined with a corporeal body, a body that exists on this earth. But I read in Jeremiah where it says before. Before means prior to. Which indicates that prior to your body was formed, you existed. That's an important point as far as where we come from and how we're made. I mean, the real us, our soul. So when a living being, a zygote, embryo, fetus is present, a soul and a spirit must also be present if we bring all these verses together. Now, I know there's you know, great debate and there will continue to be great debate about abortion. Um, and I think that that basically settles it right there if you look at it pretty closely. And I don't want to get into that discussion here today but because I think we all are on the same page where that's concerned. However, those verses, when you join them together, make it pretty obvious that a life is present in the womb when the sperm and the egg are joined. Now, there's also a debate, has been debate for quite some time, as far as this term called universalism. I'm behind... So, I was way behind. Okay, 
The idea of will all souls be saved? The idea of universalism. Um, there are actually many people who believe that any punishment that we receive after we end this life, if we have not been faithful to God, will merely be remedial in nature. That's where the idea of purgatory comes from that we see in other religions. This place where you go and you know, it kind of helps you, it remediates you, it puts you on a remedial program, and it gets you ready for heaven. Well, there's really no evidence in Scripture for that, and we'll discuss that in more depth as well. The over, our overarching idea is that souls will eventually wind up in heaven based on universalism. The idea that, you know, okay, well, you just you were, you were really bad, so you've got to go here first, and then, then you're going to move up to this level, and then you're, eventually you're going to make it to heaven. Or, oh, well, you weren't all that bad, so you're going to go to purgatory, and then eventually you'll make it to heaven. But eventually everybody's just going to make it to heaven. Well, Scripture does not support that viewpoint, and we'll talk about that in more depth. And we also have to realize that hell is described as a place of eternal destruction. And, uh, and we see that in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 8. So, you know, there's far more supporting information about uh, hell being a real place and souls actually going there than... than there's no supporting evidence whatsoever of that, of of universalism in Scripture. Um, uh, not, yes, and and actually, I was just about to get to that, Doug. That's a good point. So, um, but die, dying in sin basically necessitates an eternal separation from God. Is what it comes down to. God cannot be in the presence of evil. He is too good for. He is too good. He is just too good, and he cannot be in the presence of that. So, there is this necessity for the soul who is not right with God to be separated from him uh, and thus from heaven for eternity. Now, what happens, and this is what Doug was just asking about, was annihilation. So what happens to the soul after death who has not been faithful? Um, are they annihilated or, uh, or do they suffer eternal punishment? Now, this will get a little more, bit more deeply into this, but annihilation, if you don't know what that is already, means that some people think that if you've been an unfaithful person in life, that your soul, whatever is left of you after you have left your body, will be destroyed completely, that you'll just cease to exist. You'll be annihilated. Now, there's no supporting evidence for that view in Scripture, but it's important to look at what is supported in Scripture as far as what happens to the soul who is not right with God when they have uh, left this life and left this body. <clears throat> the soul is immortal and eternal. So that property being known, realizing that the soul is immortal and eternal, we have to understand that it has to exist in some state, in some area, eternally. Now, one of those places we know as heaven and one of those places we know as hell. So we have to delve into, and we will in a latter lesson, later lesson, what those places are and how that all comes together. Some suggest that instead of eternal punishment, the soul will simply be destroyed or annihilated, which we already covered. And these same people suggest that the redeemed soul will live on forever in heaven, which kind of presents this dichotomy. Uh, there's a contradiction there. You know, you can't have your cake and eat it too, or eat your cake and have it too. <laughs> you, you can't have both. If you're going to exist eternally one place, then you have to exist eternally somewhere else. And we'll look at the proof text for that in Scripture as we move into that lesson later on. So how does sin relate to the soul? Um, you know, as, as, as human beings, we occupy a privileged position in creation, don't we? 
We know the difference between right and wrong. We know what sin is. We have choice. We're able to make choices for ourselves. And these are all important things that make us uh, privileged people. You ever considered the fact that animals don't sin? And when a lion goes and kills a, a gazelle, it's not sinning. It's not murdering the gazelle. It's killing the gazelle for food, right? They kill the animals use instinct. Well, we're not animals. We don't use instinct. We use reason. We think from a place farther and deeper inside of us, a place from outside of us even, that leads us to morality. And we'll discuss that in greater depth later on. As we see in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As a result, our souls are separated from God by sin, unless we are in Christ. So will the soul be punished for sin? There's purpose and necessity for punishment. It's one of the first things we have to realize. Um, There are three types of punishment that we see in Scripture. There's preventative, remedial, and retributive, or retributive, I guess. Um, And of these three, uh, retribution uh, can be used either momentarily as with the flood or eternally with those who deny Christ. So, you know, retribution is what we kind of focus the most on and what we're most concerned with as Christians to see, you know, whether or not we're going to have eternal punishment or not. So how does heaven relate to the soul? Now, this is, heaven is my favorite subject, my favorite subject ever. So this lesson is going to be extra long, so y'all be ready for that one that night. Um, I really enjoy studying about heaven and talking about heaven. Um, Heaven in Scripture is referred to at some points as paradise. Now, there is a little bit of discussion that we'll do about that. Because Jesus describes a place as paradise when he talks to the thief on the cross. Um, you know, tells him in this day, you know, this, this day you will be in, with me in paradise. Things like that. Um, so I, I want to look at a little bit of difference between, um, between that and also uh, the parable that he tells about the rich man and Lazarus. And describing paradise in that parable or the bosom of Abraham. And maybe a possible difference between that place, paradise, and heaven. And uh, I think there's some really interesting things to delve into there. Um, Heaven is where God abides. So you'd expect a place where God abides to have properties uh, or aspects that match up with God and with our souls in order for us to exist eternally there. Also, it's eternal in nature and it's a spiritual realm. The soul and the whole person. Um, the soul is just one part of us. It's, it's a very important part of us, but it is one part. Um, the, resu- the soul also relates to the heart, mind, and strength of a person. You know, we see it in uh, Deuteronomy uh, where the greatest command is first given. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, strength, and mind, right? Four different aspects. And we're going to talk about how those four aspects relate to each other because they all interrelate in making us who we are. Um, 
And again, the soul is self. The soul is who we are. And what's the difference between a whole Christian and an incomplete person? You ever thought about that? Have you ever considered what makes you as a Christian different? I mean, really different from the rest of the world. Because we are. Whether you realize it or you've thought about it very deeply or not, we are extraordinarily, or we should be extraordinarily different from any other soul in this world, if we're Christians. The Christians have more parts than non-Christians. Think about that. I think the answer to that question is yes. Do these parts bring our soul into a complete relationship with God? I think the answer to that one is yes, too. So how does that happen? Well, look at that. That'll be kind of close to the end of our, uh, our quarter. And finally, uh, psychological disorders and the soul. Um, I'm, I've had a lot of opportunity to, to study this. Um, my master's degree was actually in uh, counseling and psychology. So I was able to do a lot of study and research in this area. So when I started thinking about the soul, because there are a lot of questions that come up when you talk about the mind, the mental state of, of human beings, and the soul. People try to equate the two. And I don't think that's appropriate. And I think if you answer any of the following questions, yes, you might not be thinking the right way. You know, are the brain and the soul the same thing? I don't think so. I really believe they're not. And we'll look at that and some, uh, some scriptural basis for that. When people experience multiple personalities, also called disassociative identity disorder, um, DID, uh, if they have multiple personalities, are there multiple souls inside that person? Some people think the answer to that question is yes. I don't believe so. And I'll tell you why when we come to that. Are people who have disorders beyond help? Again, I don't, I don't believe they are. I think that those types of disorders can be healed the same way a physical disorder can be healed. In many cases, you know, psychological disorders are actually precipitated by uh, physical uh, chemical imbalances. In some cases, they're caused by uh, childhood trauma. Many other things can occur to cause uh, those types of disorders, and those disorders can be healed uh, the same way that a physical ailment can be healed. Um, <clears throat> and, of course, prayer goes a long way there, as well as medical attention. And are people who are mentally or psychologically disabled somehow less human? Now, this is the one that I think is at the, the paramount stage of debate in society today because you have naturalists on one side who believe that the answer to this question is yes. In fact, there are some who go so far as to say that it is better for society if people who are psychologically, mentally, or even in some cases physically disabled should be put to death. People have actually thought that before. There was this guy named Hitler who thought that. And he enacted it in the worst possible way. 
And there are nationalists today who believe the same thing. Oh boy, well I'm right on time actually. So basically I hope that this study, this quarter is going to be helpful and and quite in depth for all of us as we explore who we truly are and our ultimate destiny as well. So um, I do want to give uh, a little special attention to uh, Apologetics Press because I did find some of this research on their website and that helped quite a bit. Um, But I look forward to the study and uh, hope it will be as valuable to you as it has been to me. Thank you very much.